us join our voices to praise the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us from sin and death. We, the redeemed, will sing praises and shout for joy because in Christ the lamb, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. To him who sits on the throne, we give praise this hour and forever. You guys can have a seat. Now, welcome 
to Fellowship College, you guys. We're excited that you are here. It looks a little different this evening. Um, I have been wanting to do a choir pretty much every day since COVID hit, but we've been trying to limit numbers on stage, and so typically we'll have like full band with a big choir loft, and everybody would be um, singing the choir there, but um, I got too antsy, and so so we're going to do a choir tonight and just have the music stripped down a little bit, and I really hope that encourages you all to sing as you hear more voices from the stage singing. Um, before we move into our next song, I wanted to give a little context for it. And so it's it's a new one. I don't think we've done um, here in Fellowship College before, but I'm sure a lot of you know it. It's called Psalm 46. You might know it more um, from the parentheses name, Lord of Hosts. Um, it's, a, it's an incredible song, um, and it is written from Psalm 46 read Psalm 46, you'll see a lot of those lines there that that we'll sing uh, here in just a moment. But Psalm 46 was actually written from a story that we see in 2 Kings 19. And some of you may know that story, but if not, I wanted to give a little context um, to what we're about to sing, because I think it's it's really powerful. So in 2 Kings 19, we see King Hezekiah and the nation of Judah. Uh, and they're in this city that's surrounded uh, by these walls. And that's, that's their protection, are the, are these walls. Uh, but uh, the Assyrian army is approaching. And this Assyrian army, it's, it's a bunch of bad dudes. So they've been, they've been going through and conquering nation after nation. Uh, some, some would say they're maybe the most powerful army in the history of the world. And they're mean skin people alive. I mean, they were, they were bad dudes and everyone was terrified of them. And so, and so they're, they're approaching, um, they're approaching the city and King Hezekiah that's in the city with, with Judah, he goes, he goes before the Lord and he's just asking the Lord for protection because they have, they have no chance at fighting the Assyrians. Like they don't stand a chance. They're not even going to try. They're just hoping these walls can hold that's the only way that they're going to be able to survive the night against these Assyrians as they're approaching. And so, and so we see King Hezekiah pray, and I'm going to paraphrase some of this. Um, again, it's 2 Kings 19. You should, you should go read this because it's, really, it's a really incredible story. Uh, he says, Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. The Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of earth may know that you alone are Lord our God. In faith, he's asking God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but please protect us because you are all we have right now. And so... God responds to the prophet Isaiah. And again, it's really beautiful. You can go read um, what God says through the prophet Isaiah. But he's essentially saying, I will take care of you. I will protect you. It's going to be okay. And so you can take hope in that. And so that night, God sends the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, ever-present, knowing what his people need. He's going to defend his people. 
He sends the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord slays 185,000 Assyrians. The tribe of Judah, they, they don't even have to leave the gates. They don't leave the walls. The angel of the Lord protects them. He defends them. And so the next morning, King Hezekiah brings the nation of Judah out of the walls and declares Psalm 46. And so that's what we're about to sing is this declaration that King Hezekiah makes. And that morning after when they, when they walk out and there's, there's desolation all around them and God has protected them. And this is what he said. He says, come behold the works of the Lord for he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That is our God. The same God that we see in 2 Kings is the same God that we worship, Yahweh, our eternal King. And so let's keep that in mind throughout the rest of the night as we sing praises. This is the God of old, the God of ages. We're worshiping the same King who has protected his people, and he will continue to protect you. He will protect you in your war of sin, of discontentment, sorrow, he can deliver you. And so let's sing Psalm 46 together. Let's stand and let's worship. Come behold the works of God, patient at his feet. He brings the bow, bends the spear, and tells the worst he sees. Oh, mighty one of Israel,
God, glory be to you, our one and only King and Savior. God, remind us of your majesty, remind us of your goodness, your faithfulness. God, we can rest in you because you have proven yourself time and time again. As we read your word and we see um, the boldness of your Holy Spirit, God, the, uh, the power of your name. God, we can rest in that because we've seen it. God, we've seen evidence in our lives, in our hearts, in our friends that surround us in this room. God, we've seen evidence of your goodness and grace. And so, God, we're thankful that we get to sing praises to your name. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. <clears throat> Good evening, everybody. How are we feeling tonight? Beating Tennessee always feels nice to me. Uh, feel very nice. Wow. Yes, then you too. Thank you. Um, so I, I want to show you a, a six-second video clip. Um, a friend of mine showed me this earlier this week. Uh, I've never done the virtual reality, like, glasses thing. But uh, has anybody done, though, the virtual reality thing, those little glasses? Okay. I've not, I've not experienced it yet. But uh, apparently there's a game on these VR glasses where... Uh, you push a button, you go up an elevator, and then there's like a plank, and you can look 360. You're supposed to walk off the edge of this building onto that plank, and then at the end, you're supposed to jump off and experience what it would be like, virtually, of course, to fall from, uh, I guess, the top of a building. I don't know why this would be fun, but it is a, it is a real thing. And uh, this person was telling me about it, and I was like, it can't be that realistic. And uh, this video, I think, might be proof in that. You're supposed to, at the end, just sort of jump like this because you know you're not in this real environment. You're actually in your living room, but this person didn't get that memo. We'll watch it twice, only six seconds. Hit, hit that for me. He's walking on the plank. Time to jump. Let's just, let's watch it again. Apparently it's realistic. Show it one more time. <laughs> that has... Literally nothing to do with my talk at all. Like nothing to do with where we're going tonight at all. I just personally found it enjoyable. I thought you might as well. After the week we've had kind of in our country, uh, I thought we could use that. Uh, and so we, we all enjoy, we all love, oh, we're, let's go forward. We all love like a great, <laughs> it's just sitting there. It wants to be played. Um, we all love like the great comeback story, the great survival story, the, the moment when things seem bleak but either a team or a person in a really difficult situation can come out of it. Like, like a good example, last, like last night in the game. Uh, going into halftime, I don't know if anybody that played in the game is here, but 13-0 going into halftime, uh, my bet is that had the coaching staff last night during the game had this kind of message to the team, the second half would have been much different. If the message was something like this, they're just... They're bigger, and they're faster, and they're stronger than we are. I don't think we can come back and win this game. It's over. Like you could imagine, had that been the message at halftime, we, Arkansas probably would have lost by a lot, and you can't go out and fight with that kind of a message. But there's, some, there's hope when you walk into that kind of halftime speech. Hey, listen, we haven't played our best game yet, and we could come out there. They're not too far ahead of us. We got this. And it's that hope in that moment often that pushes 
in this case, a team forward. I, I grew up uh, playing basketball up here, and uh, I played for Bentonville, and Fayetteville at the time had a guy that later went and played in the NBA. Uh, and so he's my age. We played each other against each other always, and uh, it was horrible playing against Fayetteville, and we were down by about 20 or so at halftime. And I remember we went into the locker room, and our coach essentially went, it's over. And guess what? We lost by 35. We didn't come back. It doesn't help also that he's in the NBA and I'm this. Uh, so that didn't help our team at all. Um, we, we love the stories of comeback. Let's go through the video here. We love the stories of comeback. Like I love the Apollo 13 story. They made a movie about it in the night. It's one of my favorite movies. Every time it's on TV, I have to watch it. And the story of Apollo 13 is the side of their spaceship going to the moon gets completely blown off. And essentially, they're not going to be able to land on the moon. They don't even think they're going to be able to survive. And yet, an unbelievable amount of engineering, hard work, and just hours and hours and hours having this tiny flicker of hope. Like they could have given up at any moment, but they're able to make it all the way back to Earth with basically half of a ship. This flicker of hope radically changes their experience when they're in that spaceship. I mean, not only our true stories, but also our our narratives, our fiction stories are built on this concept. Mandalorian fans in the room? Okay, not, not less than I thought. Y'all are cool, I guess, uh, like Sunday night service. All right, so uh, I'm really glad Mandalorian is back. But if you think about the Star Wars narrative, the Star Wars meta narrative is essentially a story built on hope. The evil empire is ruling and reigning over all of the, the universe, over all the different uh, systems, and they, they have this tiny little rebellion, this insignificant little rebellion. And one of my favorite lines in Star Wars has to do with this concept of hope. It was in Rogue One. And when all hope seems lost, when everything seems bleak, one of the characters says this line, and I just love this line. I was like, yes, that's perfect for this movie. They say, we don't have any hope we have the tiniest, tiniest little bit of hope left. It's all we've got. We have nothing else. We just have hope. And he says, rebellions are built on hope. This tiny little flicker of hope, and it keeps them moving. It steadies them in the moment. So what we want to do as we keep diving into our First Thessalonians study is we're going to look at the power, the strength of what it is that hope does for us, when we understand it, we want to look at how a ragtag group of people in the first century were able to say, we're following a crucified Jewish man. And yet that ragtag group of people was over to overcome the power, most powerful empire in the history of the world, the Roman Empire. They're carrying this message of hope, and it steadied them, and it gave them toughness, and it gave them grit. And for you and for me, tonight, that is available it's my hope, my prayer tonight that we walk out of here going, we've got the power of hope in us. And here's going to be our three points as we, as we go through and look at it. First, we're going to see the content of our hope is that we have a different king, that we understand we're in a different kind of a battle, and that we're using different weapons. Different king, different battle, different weapons. And if we understand this right, if we can orient ourselves to this passage correctly, I think it might radically affect your emotion and how you experience things in your life. That's my hope, at least. Now, before we move forward, uh, just a quick, a quick timeout uh, for us. Uh, I know if you were here last week, uh, we had a little scare at the end of the service. And can I, uh, I called Bolding on the way up here. We've been checking on him all week. Uh, Bolding's doing great. 
Um, on Monday, he got out of the hospital, and so uh, I actually called him and said, hey, what do, you, what do you want me to say tonight, if anything? And he said, keep it short and sweet. And so I'm keeping it short and sweet. He, he did want to say uh, he's really appreciative of all the texts and the phone calls and really especially appreciative of the prayer. I, I, I was... Last week, it really blew me away. I was in the back when that happened, and by the time I got up here, like three or four of you were already, two of you were nursing majors, I don't even know where you are, were already up here, and like, you're heroes uh, to us and our staff, and so we just wanna say, th yeah, thank you. Um, it was obviously scary, and uh, I, as I looked around, I, I saw people praying in groups and praying in pockets of people in here, and that was just so encouraging to me, pastorally, to see y'all just in action. And so thank you for doing that. Bolding says thank you. Now, as we, as we continue looking at this book, this 1 Thessalonians letter that we're studying, we first need to define hope. All right, let's get our concept. Let's do some definition work right off the bat. See, in modern American culture, this is what hope sounds like. Here's how the concept gets defined. We say things like this. We hope that the Razorbacks beat Florida next Saturday. Or we hope that it's going to be a beautiful week, unlike last week's crappy week when it was freezing. We hope we get a promotion. Or we hope they grade the test on a curve. We've been there? Now, when we say that, what we're expressing is, really we're expressing our wish it's a preferable outcome that we have very little certainty on. So in that sense, we might define the concept of hope like this. Hope is something that we wish for. And I think that's how we use the word in American culture. Now that is gonna be drastically different than what we're gonna see with Paul and the followers of Jesus. For Paul, hope is not something that he wishes for, it's something that he waits for. Let me illustrate the difference. When you were a kid, okay, remember this, think back, maybe you still think, maybe you still hope for this. When you were a kid, you hoped for snow days, right? If we could just get a couple of snow days, I wanted to go to school, I love snow, it's going to be awesome. And in that sense, you are wishing for a snow day. You have no ability to affect the outcome, and if you're from Arkansas or Texas, it's very unlikely that you're going to get a snow day. Now, that is very different than a student saying this, or maybe you saying this when you were a kid, I hope for Christmas break. See the difference? The hope for a snow day is something that you wish for, but it's not that certain. The hope for spring break is something that you wait for with certainty. It drastically affects the way you orient to both of those things. The biblical understanding of hope is more like the second, something that we wait for. And if we, if we don't understand that, if we just think hope is this sort of wishful thinking, then we're not going to get the grittiness of the way that these people are understanding hope and what it does for your life. Now, let's dive into the passage. First Thessalonians, here's our context. Paul, in chapter 4, we looked at it last week, Josh taught it last week, Paul has been addressing those who are grieving having lost one of their friends to death. And here's what Paul says. He spends all of the end of chapter four addressing this. He says this. He starts our, this long conversation that bleeds into chapter five right here. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who see it have no hope. We orient to the experience of friends of ours dying, family members dying completely differently because we have hope. And then we get something radical. 
For we believe that Jesus died. Now, now hear me. The historical uh, like investigation of whether a real person named Jesus lived and was crucified in Israel under the Roman Empire is not debatable at this point. Uh, almost every serious scholar would say there was a man named Jesus and he was crucified by the Romans, okay? But what comes after the and is radical. That Jesus died and that he rose again. See, as followers of Jesus in the room, if that's who you are, then what you're saying is you are putting a stake in the ground to say the historical reality of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is where I'm placing my hope. I'm betting everything on it that the tomb really was empty. And you're saying, when Jesus rose from the dead, that means he is victorious over the power of sin and death. Now, I I recognize, maybe that's not you in the room. Maybe you're here tonight and you're saying, that's not me. I don't know if I buy that. I don't know if I buy this whole biblical story. We're so glad you're here. We hope this is a place where you can wrestle with that. Bring those questions that you have, those doubts that you have. Can I simply ask you one simple favor? I get asked all the time, Hey, Garland, you don't really believe in, name the, name the thing, uh, a virgin birth. Come on. Uh, that a personal God made the universe. We've debunked that now. You don't really believe that God parted the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds or whatever it is in Egypt and he freed his people and did all these plagues. Come on, that's crazy. And my response usually is, we actually believe that a dead person rose from the grave and as such conquered death Virgin birth, piece of cake. Creation of the universe, easy. Because that means sin and death have been defeated. And what I would ask you to do is this. Paul would say we stake our claim on verse verse 14. If you are investigating Christianity and you've got your doubts, may I ask you, investigate the resurrection. Start there. If you, have, if, you, if you want to process the person that brought you tonight, if you want to come talk to me or one of our staff after the service, we would love to process that with you. It's an okay place to bring those doubts and to bring that skepticism, but I want to invite you to look right there. If you're doubting or struggling as a follower of Jesus, look right there. Because for Paul, this is where it begins. This is where this gritty power of hope begins. But then in chapter 5, he's going to dive into, we're going to dive into our section. He says, now brothers and sisters, he's discussing Jesus's return and some natural questions might arise like, tell us more about this and what, when's it going to happen and all that. And look at what he says. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, Paul is being unbelievably careful here, like super intentional here. Look at what he says. He says, while people are saying, Peace and safety. If you look at your Bibles, look at your Bible that you brought, most translations are going to take it, take it as peace and security. I think it's a, that's the better translation, peace and security. Here's why. Paul is taking a slogan, a statement that was widely circulated in his day, peace and security. He's not just saying, you know, while anybody might be saying, yeah, peace and yeah, whatever, safety, security. He's saying, no, 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 While people are saying peace Insecurity. What is he? What is he poking at here? What's he looking at? The phrase 
Peace and security was a Roman slogan in the first century. Here's the story that the Roman Empire was telling. You ready? Here's the story. Their Caesar is the divine son of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one who brings peace and security and justice to the nations. He's the savior of the world to the ends of the earth, bringing in a thousand-year reign of peace and security. I want you to notice what Paul is saying. He's being very, very clever here. And it's going to be our first point, that we have a different king This is the story that the Roman Empire is circulating. And you better bow down to Caesar. He's the king. Now, Paul knows the way that that peace and that security was accomplished. If anybody's ever done any world history class, the Pax Romana, the Pax et Securitas, the way that that came into the world was through the power of a sword and a spear and a whole bunch of crosses. Bow down and worship Caesar. If not, we're going to kill you. Peace and security. And Paul takes this slogan and he says, while people are saying peace and security, little do they know that destruction is coming upon them. Paul is very cleverly saying those claims of kingship that Caesar makes will fall and will fail. He's not the true king. Here's how I know that. Look at verse 2. He says, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And my bet is, for most of us in the room, that phrase, day of the Lord, doesn't mean all that much to you. Just, it just went right over our heads. And it does for me oftentimes, too. We read these things in the Bible, and they go right over our head. The day of the Lord is a category. It's a phrase that is loaded with all sorts of images and all sorts of pictures for Paul's audience. It's why he says, I don't need to tell you more about it. You already know this. It'd be like in America saying, hey, you know that Black Friday is coming. And Black Friday has all sorts of images that come up into our minds, right? We watch football on Thursday, and then Black Friday is the day when people go insane. Like people lose their minds on Black Friday. People get in fights with each other. People tackle each other. Like my favorite one was this one that I found. Like people literally coming to blows in stores to get the best possible deal that they can get. I cannot imagine being this frustrated in a mall about anything. And here here it comes to blows on Black Friday. But in American culture, when we say Black Friday is coming, we all know what that means. That same thing is true for this concept of the day of the Lord. Now, what does it mean? How does it use in the Old Testament? The Bible tells this story, that God created this universe for his glory, and he created people to experience that glory, that they might have joy in it, that he would give and bless humans with authority that he is bestowing upon them, that they might be his co-rulers in the world with him. And yet, instead of gladly receiving what the creator God is offering, humanity instead said, no, 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 no. We can take power, take authority, take the ability to define good and evil, right and wrong, just and unjust on our own terms. You see the story in Genesis chapter three. We call it the fall. Humanity says, we'll take control. We don't need you, God. And as a result, that has led to this infection of the human condition 
where people fight for power against each other so they might outdo each other in honor and power and glory. And that's true at the micro level and the macro level as nations and countries fight against each other, jockeying for position and for power. And this infection called sin, it's the reason that you've experienced all the wounds and the brokenness and the betrayal and the hurt that you've experienced. It's the reason our nation and nations experience all the backstabbing and the wounds and the hurts. It's the reason we see all the injustice that we see in the world. This infection called sin has crushed the human condition. And what the day of the Lord is teaching in the Old Testament is that God has a date with destiny for sin and for evil. He will not let it wreak havoc and go unmet. We might say, we might define the day of the Lord this way. These three aspects of it are prominent in the Bible. First, it's the day where Yahweh, the creator God, vindicates his righteousness. He shows his rightness. His righteousness and justice are often synonyms in the Bible. He will, be, he will be shown to be true and just. Number two, it's a day when Yahweh brings judgment on sin and evil. And lastly, he liberates his people. It's this concept of the day of the Lord. What it means is the power of sin will be dealt with. The power of evil and injustice will be dealt with. And by the way, this is good news our culture's crying for it. They just don't know it. And Paul says, there's a day coming. The day of the Lord will show that Caesar is not the true king. Jesus is. And can I press it a little further? America ain't the true kingdom either. No matter whether you're happy today because of the election or upset today because of the election. If you are looking to the way elections go in America for your peace and your security, that is revealing your hope is in by far the wrong place. You'll be tossed every four to eight years. That is not where our peace and security come from. We have a different king, and the day of the Lord will show it. Now, this is where we're, we're getting some grit here. We need to get the power of hope first, we have a different king. Second, we recognize we're in a different battle. Look at what Paul says at the end of our section, verse 11. He says, these are commands, therefore encourage one another and build each other up as in fact you are doing. This is supposed to be encouraging to the audience that he is talking to. And he, we wanna understand what's he asking them to do. So back up to verse five, check it out. He says, you are all children of the light, he calls them these followers of Jesus, children of the day. And he's gonna contrast that with a different group. He says, we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Well, how do you know? What does that look like? Well, look at the next verse. He unpacks it for us, verse six. So then, he says, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He doesn't want you to mix, miss the, the, the thought he's given here, so he gives two mental images for you. The first is somebody sleeping. You ever fallen asleep in class and gotten caught? It's wonderful, isn't it? But you wake up and you really don't know where you are and you kind of feel bad about it. You're like, that was awesome. You obviously weren't very interesting. That's why I fell asleep. Uh, you ever fallen asleep in class? He says, don't be, it's, the best thing is when 
Uh, when you're in one of those big classrooms and somebody falls asleep in one of those and everybody knows that that person fell asleep, Paul's saying, don't be like that guy. The second thing he says is, don't be like the drunk person. He gives really vivid imagery for us. I told you, uh, now that The Bachelor is back, I'm gonna give you a Bachelor reference almost every week. And so uh, just, it's just gonna happen, so get used to it. My team still hates it, I'm still going. Uh, the, the Bachelorette, this almost always happens if you think about it, and if you haven't watched the show, I'll describe it for you. Uh, especially on The Bachelorette, where it's one girl and a bunch of guys. Uh, the guys show up, and it happens every single season. One guy on the very first night, so the very first night, it's like the, the meet and greet where they're supposed to get to know the person and they're supposed to woo her and try to get her attention. Uh, so they show up and almost every single season, one of the guys will, will meet her and all that. Then he goes into the, the big mansion that they're at, that they're at and he sees the, the booze and the party and he, gets, he just goes crazy. And almost every season, there's one guy who just gets completely hammered drunk like that very first night and he always gets kicked off, always gets booted out of there. Why? He saw the party, he saw the booze, he saw all of that, and he missed why he was there. Of course he gets kicked out. You're here to try to meet this girl and woo this girl and let her get to know you, and you got distracted by everything else around. And Paul says, don't be like that. Don't be that guy. That's not who you are to be. That's characteristic of the darkness he says, he's gonna give us one more image. Look at verse eight. It says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Now, what does that look like to walk? He's not talking about drunkenness or not. He's talking about a state of mind. Let us be sober with urgency, ready. He describes what that looks like. He says, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet, he gives them another image. Not the person asleep or the drunk idiot. Now he gives them a picture of a soldier. And everybody in the first century knew what a Roman soldier looked like. They're everywhere. They come ready for battle. He says, be like that. That's the kind of urgency I want you to have as you go out and try to live this hope out. The Roman soldier doesn't spring out of bed in the morning, hung over, doesn't put his armor on, then goes out there looking to fight. They're going to get routed that way. He says, no, no, no. They ready themselves. They put on their armor, and they walk out into the battle. Now, this armor of God illustration, Paul's going to use it three different times. This is the first time he uses it in 1 Thessalonians. And you may have missed it. Check this out. This is really fascinating. Paul is stealing the idea. He's stealing the image from Isaiah 59. Here's the context of Isaiah 59. The people of Israel stuck in Babylonian exile. They're slaves to a foreign power who's, who's uh, committing a great injustice and oppression against them. And Yahweh, he sees it. And this is what we see. The creator God looked and was displeased that there was no justice he saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So what does he do? He says, I'll intervene. I'll save. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. Now notice verse 17. Look at what it says. He, Yahweh, put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Yahweh put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal, passion as in a cloak. It's Yahweh's 
armor. The Lord puts on the armor to go out on his people's behalf. This is really important. Look at what Paul does. That same armor with the same amount of power of the God who created the universe, that armor, he says, put it on. The power that he has, wear it. Put it on. Wait for it. Hope for it. I mean, if you think about it, it's not that dissimilar from this. Like, he doesn't have any power on his own. Think about it. Beside that he's really rich, which gives you power in our world. But he doesn't have any actual superpower until he puts the armor on. And now, all of the power comes to fruition. And Paul says, that armor that Yahweh takes up, he, Paul is reworking the image and saying, you wear it. Now, the other place that Paul uses this illustration is in Ephesians chapter 6. It's the more famous one. And I want you to see this, because if we miss it, then it, I don't think our hope will be directed in the right spot. Check this out. Ephesians 6. It's a famous passage. If you grew up in the church, you probably had to memorize or sing some song about it. Um, Ephesians 6. He says... Finally, remember, Paul says you're in a battle in 1 Thessalonians, and now he's going to say the same thing. But who is, what is the nature of the battle? Look at it. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Your strength, by the way, it does not come from in you. It does not come from you, you know, learning more about yourself. It doesn't come from you figuring out like, well, this is how fours react to things on the Enneagram. And so because I'm a four, I understand just more about myself and I'm just so artistic and individualistic. And well, I'm an eight and I always do this. And so that's not where your strength comes from. Understanding that you're a gold retriever. And so that doesn't do anything. That's not where your strength arises from. And unfortunately, that's what our culture has told you. You are the strength to take on the things of your day and the things of your life, you know where it comes from? Dig deep within you. Just go deeper into you. Learn more about you. Go, go get more counseling and go learn more about yourself and go re- listen to podcasts about your Enneagram and do all that. Myers-Briggs, do it all. And you'll finally discover your true self and you'll be strong. And here's the problem with that. That never works when push comes to shove. It's also missing the nature of the battle. Check this out. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor, the Isaiah 59 armor, so that you can take your stand not against the claims of Caesar. Paul's going to show us the battle's way more intense than we even realize. Check it out. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Hard stop. What is Paul saying? That infection called sin that we talked about earlier that has wreaked havoc on the human condition at a macro and a micro level. Remember the garden scene in Genesis chapter three? There's a whisper It's a whisper from a liar. It's a whisper from a power, a dark power that says, did God really say you shouldn't eat from that? Take it. At a micro and at a macro level, there is a dark power 
called sin and the authorities and what he calls the authorities and the rulers and the powers of this dark world, they are at work and they're after your joy. And they're after, they're trying to snuff out your hope. The battle that you are in is way more intense than you realize. And by the way, I get this is weird. As modern 21st century American Christians, which some of you are, we have essentially adopted American ways of thinking and chunked all of this. So we think like naturalists, which means everything has a natural explanation, nothing else. The problem is that's not, the, that's not how the biblical authors think. There's a whisper trying to rob you of joy and crush your hope at a macro and a micro level. And Paul says, put on the full armor of God. Whose armor? It's his armor that Yahweh puts on and that power is now in you so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Hope of what you're waiting on says, take your best shot, I've got his armor. He's won the battle. My king is bigger, and I hope for it. You can try to take me out. You can throw me in jail. Paul would say, put me in jail. Sweet. I'm going to tell them all about Jesus. Are you going to kill me now? Awesome. I get to go be with Jesus. Well, you're going to let me out? Dude, more ministry. You can't stop him. It's the kind of hope that is available for you and for me tonight. And here's how we close. We fight this different battle under the banner of our different king with very different weapons. See it. I love this quote. The, the reality is this kind of battle is only going to be won with hope. And if we don't have this deep, gritty, strong hope within us, we're going to be tossed back and forth. So what is our weapons? Remember in Isaiah 59, the Lord looked and was displeased. There's no justice. So he goes out to bring salvation and righteousness and justice into the world. It's not just that we have Yahweh's armor on and the strength of his armor. Followers of Jesus, hear me on this. You are walking as the hands and the feet of his justice and righteousness in the world. You're, you're carrying it forward. You put on the standard of this different king and you walk forward under that banner, in that name. Man, that's intense. Man, that's awesome. And our culture really doesn't get it. Are you ready? Because we have a different king and we're bending the knee to him. Now, I want you to see the weapons. Rome's weapons were swords, spears, crosses. What are our weapons? Look at it. If we don't get what the weapons are, we won't be, our power won't be unlocked. See it. Faith and love and hope. These are our weapons. We walk forward, recognizing we're in a battle, pushing back against the power of darkness. And our weapon isn't political power, isn't getting lobbyists in Washington, isn't getting the right person elected. Our weapon isn't getting as fired up as we can and yelling at the other team or getting the best logic to outdo them on Instagram. That is not our weaponry. Our weaponry is faith and hope and love. That's what we walk forward with. 
we shouldn't be surprised. This is exactly how Jesus won. How did Jesus secure victory? We have to understand it because that will be how we unlock this kind of hope for us. I mean, how is it possible to walk forward with only faith and hope and love as a weapon? We understand that Jesus has already set us free and the victory is already won. Check it, check it out. See it in Colossians 2. I love this. one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, which just means you were, you were hostile to the things of God, you were outside the family. God made you alive with Christ and he forgave us our sin, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he took it away. How? How did he achieve victory? Nailed to a cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public, same powers and authorities, those, those spiritual authorities of evil and darkness, having disarmed them, he made a public spectacle of them. I love it, triumphing over them. How? By the cross. We close with this. I think C.S. Lewis is tracking with this. If you've seen Narnia or read the Chronicles of Narnia, you remember this moment. It's, it's excruciating to watch, excruciating to read. The moment when Aslan the lion, uh, he marches up to where the gathered forces of darkness are there. And they think in that moment that they're gonna win. Can you believe it? Here comes Aslan. He's letting himself be killed. And they get all, all the little weird creatures are there, and they're cheering, and they're, they're laughing, and they're dancing. And they think, this is our moment of victory. And that same thing is happening on the cross. As the power of sin gathers around Jesus to take its best shot. And the Jewish leadership and the Roman authorities... And to everybody standing there that day, they would have said, Rome won again. Jesus lost. But remember, C.S. Lewis is just so, he's just so good at how he thinks about these things, how he presents them. It's not where the story ends. The table was broken, and Aslan is on the prowl. He's back. The resurrection vindicates that Jesus is the true king of the world and the only one worthy of worship, and it's where we get our hope. The triumph has been accomplished. Where? On a cross. Forgiveness is ours. Freedom is ours. Hope is ours. Confidence is ours. So we go forth with faith and hope and love. It's the strength of hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you make us people of hope, gritty, tough hope, not wishing for some outcome, not wishing for circumstances to get better in our lives, even though we don't wish for our circumstances to be bad, but certain that no matter what comes our way, we have hope in you. Your resurrection has, is the proof and the vindication that you are the king bend our knee to you. Let us walk in that hope. Let us walk in that confidence. Let us walk with faith and hope and love that we might make a difference because you're worthy of that. And we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that you went to the cross that we might be set free, that we might call you our king.
that you would steady us. So Jesus, now we celebrate your grace, we celebrate your goodness, and we celebrate your kindness toward us. I love you, Jesus. pray all this in your name. Amen. Let's sing.
Jesus, I wait expectantly for your return as we have promised in your word. You have conquered every enemy opposed to your rightful reign. Death is no longer master of anyone who hopes in you. But darkness is all around me and there are many searching for some sense of light, for hope and peace. By your grace, you bring light into the world. You helped me to see you clearly and to see every circumstance in light of your grace. Keep me awake and clear thinking. Don't let me be fooled by the voices that offer me cheap counterfeits of your light. The day is coming when your kingdom will restore all that was broken by the curse of sin. Please forgive me when I lose sight of that. Help me be Keep me watchful for your return and my heart heavy for those who don't know you as Lord and friend. I cast my mind to Calvary. Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet. Savior on that cursed tree His body bound and drenched in tears They laid him down and Joseph's tomb The entrance by heavy strong Messiah still and all so the church and over the Tonight we get to celebrate this hope that we heard of tonight in the form of not one, no, but two, two baptisms tonight. First off, we have Lindsay Downey. Yes. And baptism, for those of you that don't know, is an outward expression of an inward faith, a life that has been changed by Jesus. We get to celebrate that with baptism. We share in his death and also share in his resurrection. And so both Lindsay and Peyton tonight are gonna celebrate with you and, and proclaim to this congregation that their lives have been changed by Jesus Christ. All right, yes, my name is Elise and I have the honor of working here at Fellowship with College Young Adult Women and meet incredible women like Lindsay. Um, Lindsay and I met about a year ago on October 31st um, and when we had our first meeting and she told me all about her life um, and just how she had had recent change with, with Jesus intersecting her life about a year earlier and her wanting just to completely pursue the Lord in bold and powerful ways um, and get connected with fellowship. And so 
It was actually this summer we were driving around and um, she's like, I would love to learn more about the Bible and learn about God's word and just live a life for him. And I want a wiser woman to come alongside me. And I was like, I don't know if that's me, but I'm gonna, I'll come alongside you. And um, it was in that moment that I just saw Lindsay um, boldly proclaim the Lord and just with humility and um, just trust, just pursue the Lord in such incredible ways. And I've been so challenged and just so humbled by her faith for the Lord. It's so fresh and so beautiful. Um, and everything I put in front of her just as opportunities to grow, she's just taken them and run with them. One of the most recent ones being her setting in to lead a college group of, of girls. So if you're in her college group, you can get a little woo. Woo, okay, yes, right a little, 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 group, <laughs> little group here. Um, it's been so incredible to watch her just use her own gifts and her um, wisdom to just share the Lord with others. And that's exactly what she's doing tonight in this bold step to be baptized. And so um, I am so excited to just see you in heaven one day and get to be living in eternity with you. And um, with that, I'll kick it over to Josh. Well, Lindsay, we're excited for this. Do you believe that Jesus died the death that you deserved? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. And do you commit to this room full of people that you will follow him for the rest of your days? Yes. Well, then it is my joy and honor to baptize you in the name of the, uh, the, <laughs> the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the one. Yeah, that's the one. Give it up for Lindsay. Well, next we have Peyton. If you're in Peyton's small group, can I get a little, there we go. I knew you guys were over there somewhere. Well, Peyton here has been following the Lord for, for 10 years now. But we were talking this week even, and in this season of COVID and uncertainty, he has really started to wrestle with what he believes and what he wants to do and his purpose in life. And he, he thought, man, I have not been baptized. I have not made this declaration of, of who I am in Christ and how I want to follow him for the rest of my days. And so it is just an honor to get to baptize Peyton tonight. And I'm excited to see what the Lord does for the rest of your life. So Peyton, do you believe that Jesus died the death that you deserved? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit? And do you believe uh, that you will also be raised by the same power? And do you commit to this room full of people that you will follow him for the rest of, the rest of your days? Well then it is my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Give it up for Peyton. Let's worship this God. That on the third, at break of dawn, the sun of heaven rose again. Oh, trample death, where is your Oh, pray. 
Thank you for the stories that you are doing in Lindsay's and Peyton's lives and, and so many others in this room. God, God, you have saved us by your grace. God, thank you for Jesus, for sending your son to die on a cross for us, to bear our sins. And then you raised him up, defeating death once and for all, so that we may inherit the righteousness of your son. That is the gospel that we can have faith in, that we can have hope in, we can find our ultimate joy in. God, thank you for that message, that story, that truth that we cling to. Fellowship, we love you guys. I hope you have a great week of worship. Thank you for being here. Thank you for worshiping with us. If you see Peyton and Lindsay, continue to encourage them. That's awesome. We love you guys. Y'all have a great evening. Thank you.